All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Before we get started today, I need to take care of a bit of bookkeeping. As some of you are aware, there's been a bit of a back and forth among fans in the audience of this show about the naming conventions that I've been using for episodes, basically from day one of the podcast. You know, uh, chapter two, part whatever, that sort of thing. And a lot of people have expressed that the convention, the naming convention, has become confusing and unwieldy, especially on the tiny screens that you might be downloading this podcast onto. I argued that the chapter labels allowed people to group episodes together into a bit of a chronology, which might be useful since we do bounce around quite a bit in terms of chronology. But I finally decided to bow to the inevitable when I realized just last night when I was editing this that my own episode numbering was completely off. I thought this was episode 38, when in fact iTunes tells me it's actually episode 41. So, yeah. If it's confusing even to me, then it's probably time to make a change. So, from now on, I will only label the episodes with the episode number, and that's how you'll see it on your podcast app of choice. So this would be episode 41, an interview with George Bell, the CEO of Excite. But I will also be maintaining the chapter convention, especially on the website. So this episode gets grouped in with chapter four about the early search engines and such. It's chapter four, supplemental episode seven, if you're into that sort of thing. And if you are, you can go to the website, www.internethistorypodcast.com and see it all grouped together by chapter which I guess is helpful if there is a particular topic that you want to deep dive into. And that's pretty much how it's going to be from now on, uh, on your phone or podcast app of choice. It'll just be labeled with the episode number and the title. And if you want to deep dive into the chapters and the chronology, the website is there for that. And I hope that this makes people happy. I hope it settles it for now, because I would hate to have to reverse course again. Anyway, having said that, as I mentioned... George Bell was the CEO of Excite.com. He took that pioneering search engine public and became the CEO of Excite at home when he oversaw that merger, that major merger of the dot-com era. George talks to us about the development of early search technology. He talks a lot about the madness of the dot-com bubble, and he even goes into some background into one of the more notorious what-ifs in internet history, that time that Excite had the opportunity to buy Google for a mere $750,000. There's plenty of other great stories like that in here, so please enjoy this conversation with George Bell. George Bell, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. George, you have uh, sort of a more of an interesting background than a lot of the people that we talk to. You come from television, which isn't that unusual, but 
Specifically, you you were involved in adventure documentaries back in the back in the eighties. Can you tell us a little bit about that? When I got out of Harvard as an undergraduate, I expected to be a writer, and I spent ten years writing and producing documentaries about vanishing tribes and vanishing animal species around the world, and also some adventure documentaries. And I did that for the first five years as a staff guy at ABC, and for the last five years, basically as a freelancer selling shows to. National Geographic, Discovery, and the BBC. And we would spend probably 100 to 150 nights a year in tents in third world countries. Um, we did the first live transmission of broadcast from the summit of Mount Everest. We did probably 20 trips to Africa. Uh, we did quite a lot of work with sharks and so forth. So it was all over the world, um, all over the continents and so forth. And um, it was an amazing 10 years. It was a bachelor's life, though, because um, this was all pre-cell phone. And most of our communication was by, in fact, telex. It was actually almost pre-fax. And um, we were, you know, hard people to pin down, hard people to be with. But it was um, very self-indulgent and an incredible life in some ways. So the, the, the rigors of that lifestyle, is, is that what leads you to sort of uh, join the corporate world? You, you go towards um, uh, magazines still in the outdoor and adventure area, but you, you, you move towards uh, magazines and publishing, right? I did. The transition was really actually quite simple. In looking back at it, there were two forces. One is I got married, and uh, I could no longer sustain that kind of life of being absent for long periods of time, unpredictably. And the second is um, that I was probably 32 or 3 or something at the time. But, you know, I began to see in all of these trips what could go wrong, not what could go right. And when I was in my early 20s, uh, traipsing around the world, it, you know, it, it seemed like uh, just a bouquet of opportunities. And as things went on, you know, you suffer accidents. Um, you don't like sleeping on the ground as much as you used to and these sorts of things. So I would say the other factor beyond marriage was a little bit of age. And um, I actually didn't know what I would do because it wasn't easy to package up at that point this kind of bizarre, wild uh, 10 years into a job that you would go into an office for every day. And um I'd won four Emmy Awards during that period of time, and I'd, I think, done as well as you could do in the documentary business. But again, it was just sort of a hard packaging problem. And through a headhunter, I was asked to go um, and interview to become the editor-in-chief of Field and Stream magazine. And um, I went because I was in need of a job. I didn't think it was the right job. And I confessed during the interview to the CEO of Times Mirror that I had no um, prior experience running a magazine. I'd done quite a lot in the outdoors, and I certainly had no experience really with hunting and fishing per se, which I understood to be staples of the Field and Stream franchise. And, you know, through a period of a couple of conversations, um, the CEO and I basically hit on an idea, which I said, why don't we explore what else you should be doing with all of these magazine titles you own, ski and skiing and snowboarding and golf and so forth, um, in the outdoors, because at that time they weren't doing anything like television shows or instructional videos or cable shows or anything. And this was in the um, sort of early 90s. So um, I actually came to work for Times Mirror, the parent company of all these magazines, to essentially try to develop um, the ideas for television. And our first idea was to essentially build half-hour shows off of outdoor magazines, which was our largest, um, most popular set of magazines, Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, and others. And I went in and bought time from ESPN on Saturday and Sunday mornings so that we could control the programming and sell the advertising in connection with selling pages of advertising in our magazines. And we put on uh, a bunch of shows. Those became very successful. And I got a phone call after about two years of doing it from ESPN saying they were kicking us off and they wanted to do it themselves. And that led to what you see on ESPN today, the Saturday and Sunday morning fishing and hunting blocks, which have become enormously successful for them. And having been thrown off, I went to our parent company again, and we owned cable systems at that time. We owned uh, many newspapers. We were a very large multinational company. And I said, we should be building our own network. Um, I think, you know, if ESPN thinks this is a good idea um, and wants to do it themselves, we've got the capacity and we own all the content to do this as a full 24 by 7 network, which we proposed to be called the Outdoor Life Network, which was really named after one of our magazines because we could license the name for a dollar. And essentially, we were given $25 million of funding within uh, the walls of Times Mirror to develop this channel. And I spent the last sort of year and a half I was there developing the channel. And it was enormously giddy and fun period of time for me, having come from this ragtag background in documentaries, to be able to translate that background into you know, the creation of a television network. We also 
did quite a lot of work at that time on the Golf Channel because we owned Golf Magazine and we went into a, for the same reasons, went into a joint partnership with um, Arnold Palmer and Joe Gibbs, who at the time were trying to start a fledgling channel around golf out of Florida. Um, so I really worked on both, but probably you know, more uh, more consistently on the Outdoor Life Channel. And um, that was sort of over a five-year period. The thing that ultimately led me to the Internet, oddly enough, was uh, was disappointment in the sense that having pitched, conceived of, and received the funding for the Outdoor Life Channel within Times Mirror, I got a phone call one day. Um, I was probably 34 years old or something. I was in New York, and I got a phone call one day from our chairman's office, and the chairman was based in Los Angeles, and it was from an admin. And the admin said to me, could you interview so-and-so next week? And I said, sure, who's so-and-so? And she goes, well, according to my notes here, he's the CEO candidate for the Outdoor Life Channel. And that's how I found out that the corporation wasn't going to give me the chance to be the CEO of this uh, entity I had created. And it soured me on large companies. You know, I, I knew I wasn't going to own equity in the channel. It's not the way things worked in those days. Um, but to be so indirect as to say, we think you're too young you know, to be able to do this is too big an opportunity, which is really why they said they were going to pass me over. Um, and at around the same time, a headhunting firm, which had come up around the birth of the Internet named Ramsey Byrne, called me and said that um, a company called Architext, which was about to change its name to Excite, was in the market for its CEO. And I never would have listened to that phone call if I had been made the CEO of the Outdoor Life Channel. And in late 1995, I flew out to uh, Silicon Valley and met with the founders of Excite and with Vinod Kosla, who was the one venture capital backer from Kleiner Perkins, and Jeff Yang, who was the other venture capital backer. Uh, he was at um, IVP in those days, now Redpoint, and uh, spent a day interviewing with those guys. It was a company of about 12 or 15 people. And it was as foreign to me as as could be. Um, right, because you have I, you have no background in technology or Silicon Valley of any kind, right? I'm an English major from Harvard with no business degree and no technology knowledge. Mm-hmm. Not only that, I thought Kleiner Perkins was a law firm. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I really didn't know anything about uh, early stage funding and venture. If you think about it, I've really, I, I, I spent 10 years in documentaries and I spent five years working for a big multinational media company. That's it. And so everything I was learning terms like search engine and crawlers and algorithms were all new words to me. Kleiner Perkins was new to me. All the people were new to me and I'd never been to Silicon Valley. Um, And so in the end of the day, the irony of kind of passing through the rejection of not being offered the CEO job at the Outdoor Life Channel, which turned out to be a great break in my professional life because ultimately I was offered the job and excited and went there. And my wife, I had two children at the time. We lived in Long Island and I commuted into New York City. My wife said to me, over my dead body, are we going to do this? Because, you know, you've just traveled around for 10 years like a maniac, and you're finally settled down. You've had this steady job at Times Mirror. You're a rising star, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we were certainly financially very comfortable. Um, And I said, I know, but this is really interesting to me. I can own equity. I realized in this Outdoor Life channel that I wasn't ever going to own equity and really make a big score. And I said, I also feel like I, I, this won't have anything to do with the bureaucracy and the politics of a big company. And we agreed that I would say yes to the job, that I would go out for about three months or so on my own in late uh, 2005 and early 2006. And I would commute back and forth between Silicon Valley and New York. And if it turned out to be that the job was a good idea and my instincts were right and so forth and I was doing fine, then you know my family would move out. And if not, I would not have disrupted my family. And... Um, that was sort of the bargain I struck with my wife. And about a week into my first commuting out there, we had an offer that the uh, company be purchased by Microsoft for $70 million in stock. And um, interestingly, my employment agreement had not contemplated that uh, an acquisition would occur before I left Times Mirror because I actually began to commute out there to become familiar with the business. And I'd already signed up to be CEO and I was in the process of resigning from Times Mirror. And um, I, I give great credit to, um, to, to Vinod and to Jeff Yang because at the time, you know, in theory, I would have had no compensation if we chose to sell. And Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer had come actually through Kleiner Perkins and said, you know, we noticed that you've built this search engine and had a couple of million dollars of funding in it. And we find the technology quite interesting. And we like what you're doing versus Yahoo because it's technology driven, not directory driven. 
And so we entered into essentially negotiation with them, but also actually a lot of soul searching within the now 15 people that worked at Excite with our venture capitalists. And on the side, Jeff and Vinod had said to me, listen, if you guys choose to sell the company and you think this is the right outcome, you know, no problem. We're going to make sure you get fairly compensated for the risk you've taken and the fact that you're resigning for your job and so forth. And I really, I, I, I mention that now because it, it really endeared me to them. And, and it sort of also cleared the decks for, for all of us to have a very honest conversation about whether we should take an early exit to Microsoft. Obviously, I think at the time there probably was about $3 million of venture capital into the business. So the return would have been very good for do you, the VCs. Do you have and, any... Do you have any recollection of what the 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 deal size what, what they were proposing? Seventy million dollars. Okay, yeah, they were, they were offering to, they're, yes, they were offering you to buy um, the company for seventy million dollars, all in Microsoft stock. And actually, people have done the calculation. I think it, you know, if you just held the stock and sat on today, the seventy million was something like you know four or five hundred million dollars today, or something like that. Right, um, right. So it was very very fair. And by the way, of course, the company was pre-revenue. All it was was losing money, and it was a bunch of engineers. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the epiphanies that occurred to us in, in the many dinners we had that week in Palo Alto, just trying to think our way through this, was that if the web was going to be big, and none of us knew how big it was going to become eventually, but if the web, web was going to be, be big, that search was going to be very integral to that experience. It was going to be confusing for people. And in rejecting the Microsoft offer, we really went on the instinct that, um, the web was going to be indispensable to people's lives in ways that we didn't yet understand, and that search would be central to that indispensability. And those were really the conclusions that we made in rejecting the Microsoft offer, but also forced us quickly into a posture of saying, you know, this is a game that's heating up even faster than we all thought, and we immediately began to prepare the company to go public, despite its immaturity. And while my... Um, wife and kids were in the process of moving out, I think our second month there, or my second month there, we were uh, in the middle of a roadshow to take this fledgling company public, led by an English major from Harvard with no business experience. We had no CFO at the time. Uh, we had not documented all of the papers one needed to do to become public at that time. You know, we were on a 15-city, 10-day roadshow and I believe the company went public in early April 1996. April 4th. Yeah. So my first 90 days at Excite were, as I described them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if I could cycle back for just a second, since you're the first Excite person we, we've been able to speak to, um, I know you weren't there for, for the founding of the company, but can you just give us a little bit of a background as you know it was explained to you? Excite was started by essentially six college kids that decided they wanted to do a company and, and they wanted to do some sort of a technology project for a company. Can, can you just give us a, a little bit of a brief background about how Excite was founded? Sure. Um, the six co-founders were all Stanford students, and I believe five of the six were technologists. Um, the one who wasn't was a guy named Joe Kraus. And Joe uh, grew up in Los Angeles and I think was a, was a political science major of some sort at Stanford. That's easy to correct or verify. Um, and the lead technologist was a guy named Graham Spencer. And there was really uh, a paper that Graham had written at um, Stanford that launched the company. And the company's first name was Architect before they changed it over to Excite. And I believe that the, the thesis of Graham's idea was that um, – searching ought to be uh, numerically based as opposed, as opposed to thesaurus based. And that vector based numerical search was going to scale uh, if indeed search itself became as big and complex as, as, as they thought it might. And really that paper and that thought um, was the founding kernel of architects and attracted the first wave of venture capital and then, you know, the venture capitalist pressure on the founding team to try and essentially build a team and commercialize it and, you know, choose a different name for the company and so forth. Right. And so that, that brings us right back to, to early 96. So um, you said that one of the motivations for doing the IPO right away is obviously because you can see that the web is taking off and you need, you need the ammo to compete and to expand and do what you need to do. Is it also... Is, is part of the motivation being in the slipstream of the Netscape IPO and also, you know, Yahoo and all the other search engines are, are writing their own public offerings as well? 
We didn't exactly know what all the other guys were doing. Obviously, Netscape was public, um, but actually Yahoo went public maybe just a few days before us. Uh, Lycos, I believe, went public, you know, kind of in the same time frame, but after us. Uh, maybe InfoSeq the same. So it, it's it's certainly possible that everybody had the same idea and that, that this was going to be a big game and you want to bulk up with capital and you want to become public because you get um, better known, you, you, you have some strengths that come with being a public company and so forth. So it was kind of an explosion because in that window of spring of 96, you had, I think, Amazon and the four search engines uh, plus CNET, I think, all get public. So there's sort of that first wave of pretty well-known companies at the time that were considering the vanguard of the most promising of, of this crop. And then Netscape had come before us. And what's the state of, of well, this is a two-parter. The, the state of the technology at the time is you're, you're running the search engine that um, Spencer created. And, and so as opposed to Yahoo being a directory, Excite is a, a pure tech play, a pure search engine, correct? Yes. At that time, the products that we offered uh, were essentially all homegrown and all technology-based on our own algorithms. And we'd also, I believe, bought a very small site called city.net. Um, and I don't, I've don't, forgotten why that came into the fold, but it did, and I think it predated me. Um, but it was sort of a, the idea of being able to uh, do um, apply the search algorithms to local searching. So uh, the second part would be... Um... Obviously, the, the, the business plan, the revenue model is advertising. Do you remember what the state of, of that product was and that technology was when you came on board in 1996? Is it, is it, are, are you able to do things like tracking? Or how, actually, tell me anything. Like, What was the state of, of the advertising product at that point? Sure. The business model at the time actually was tilting towards advertising but wasn't completely there yet. There was a product that Excite had built uh, called Excite for Web Servers. And the idea was that any webmaster um, could take down an enterprise version of Excite and use that for an internal search engine crawling, you know, a structured set of documents and words within an enterprise. And that the thought was if we could get Excite embedded as an enterprise solution, one, it would be great for the brand, and two, it would get, start to give us a lot of information about um, search terms and keywords. Ultimately, we abandoned that model, but there was a very natural tension between whether um, we should be chasing the enterprise model or uh, an advertising slash consumer model. Obviously, the consumer model won out, but at the time that I arrived, uh, the, the company had kind of a, a small footprint in both ideas. And as we looked at it more carefully and as the web began to explode, we felt that the larger of the two enterprise, larger two ideas, excuse me, was going to be around the advertising side. And at the time, uh, we had, I think, possibly one employee in advertising who was really a consultant. But um, we were using DoubleClick to place our advertising for us. So it was really a third-party relationship. And DoubleClick was just starting up. I think we were one of their first customers. And this would have been also maybe spring of 96. And um, a guy named Rick Vorhaus, uh, who had been at DoubleClick, ultimately I uh, asked if he would become an employee of ours and, and transition out of DoubleClick so that we could start to build our own sales force. And it really, I think, kind of began with that. So in 96 and, and even 97 and later, um, it's it's still a wide open field. It's the Wild West. The web is brand new and and you know, people are just being introduced to the web, much less to your brand and your company and things like that. What was the environment like in terms of there were, you know, five or six major search engines, search properties, or, you know, whatever, uh, Yahoo's a directory again, um, was a lot of the initial um, in, in, in the period of 96, 97, was a lot of the initial work that you're doing, trying to stand out from the crowd, trying to, to brand yourself, that sort of thing? I think there were two challenges. One was that the web was scaling very quickly um, and in, in some ways scaled beyond our imaginations, which caused us to make some mistakes. Initially. I'll give you an example of one. So we bought um, another search engine called Magellan, and um, we did it for two reasons. One is that in those days, 
we got the majority of our traffic through uh, Netscape referrals and that Netscape had a, a search page and it referred out all search traffic to us as vendors. Magellan had a button on that page. There were five buttons. There was Yahoo, Excite, Lycos, InfoSeq, and Magellan. And by buying Magellan, we controlled two of the five buttons on the Netscape page. So one move in buying Magellan was strategic. We now could control 40% of the flow of search traffic, presuming each of those uh, buttons got an equal amount of traffic. The second was that, um, which was, of course, wrong. Yahoo got more, and Excite got the next most, and so forth. But we still wanted to control real estate. The second was that Magellan had hired about 75 people that were basically freelance journalists under the direction of a guy named um, Jim Bellows. And the idea was to rate and review websites. And it was quite manual. You know, it was sort of a one to five star system and maybe a one sentence review of each website. Um, and in our naivete, we thought that we could keep up with the expansion of the web by reviewing sites. And of course, we quickly realized that um, sites change all the time, links get broken, sites are being created far greater than our capacity to review them. And so ultimately, um, having bought Magellan, we fired and closed down all the folks related to the editorial function, if you will, and started to think more deeply about how to use technology to deal with the scale issue. But so, so one set of challenges emblematically represented our uh, inability to see scale at the rate at which it was coming. And, and the Magellan uh, would be an example of that. The other type of challenge was really um, external and not so much against other search engines. It was to understand how consumers were coming to the web um, and, and what uh, preconceptions they brought from other media. Because, you know, it's, it, it wasn't, it sounds so simple now, but it wasn't intuitive, intuitive to anybody that you would go to a blank page and type in terms and press a button and get results. Because the, the way in which you conducted search in the media experiences that you brought to the web for the first time were either, you know, channel surfing on a TV or looking through a section of a newspaper or reading a magazine back to front. Uh, this is not, you know, this idea of typing terms into a box was not common, and it certainly wasn't intuitive. So we spent a lot of time um, actually hiring people from other media and different experiences. Um, David Z came to us from... Um, Crystal Dynamics had a games background. Craig Donato, I've forgotten where he was, but you know, probably Joe Krause, Craig Donato, David Z, uh, Brett Bullington. These, these were a core set of people with different experiences that came in. And the mix of the people turned out to be very, very important in trying to predict and understand how consumers would want to use the web and search in particular. Um, and that actually we got right. You know, it, the idea that since it was going to be so new, get the right mix of people with various backgrounds in technology and media and put the whole stew together and, you know, hopefully time and energy and friction will create interesting solutions. You know, and they did, you know, we developed personalization. Uh, we developed a channel metaphor, you know, and, and all trying to sort of oddly enough, get beyond the sort of um, the opening door of the search box. Of course, the irony was Google took it right back to that beginning point uh, a number of years later, but at the time we were all about, you know, once someone comes in to do a search, what else, and they've sort of declared in certain intentions by the keywords they type, what else can you get them to do within the boundaries of our portal, which was a word that we started to use to describe, you know, how we thought about our platform beyond search. And so I think that was probably one thing that we focused a lot on and got right. And in fact, I think we were really making ground in the late 90s against other search engines through a superior approach to um, how to think about personalizing search and, and allowing people to expand in other areas. Um, an example of this was ultimately um, made clear to us when we started to think about something called um, produced search or sort of content search. So, you know, if, if you ultimately were in the autumn of 2000 and 14 in this phone call, so I'll just use a football metaphor. So if you're looking for, type in Philadelphia Eagles, um, you know, instead of showing a bunch of search results, why wouldn't there be sort of a produced module that said, okay, here's their record to date, here's their next game, here's their injury list. You know, why weren't we crawling publicly available sources of data to essentially create a richer search result 
that might cause the user to have one higher degree of satisfaction about the, the search result and two, you know, click and 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 stay on the, the Excite platform for a longer period of time. And interestingly, that is something uh, you see Google do a lot of these days. Um, but that idea of of the intersection of product and technology to take very common terms based on seasonality or event occurrence and these sorts of things and essentially produce search results that have richer content to them as well as showing all other results below. So these are the kinds of um, slight changes or movements away from strict algorithmic-based searching that started to occur in which we would package results more richly for users. And so I think it was actually a little less about looking over your shoulder all the time and saying, what's InfoSeq doing or what's Lycos doing or what's Yahoo doing? It was more about the scale of the web itself and then also understanding how consumer behavior wanted to relate to these very new ways or very, very new metaphors in media. Well, and also let me, let me ask a little deeper question about the, the, the notion of portals um, because, you know, so many of, of these sites created portal-like uh, experiences. Was it, was it partially about um, creating more inventory for the ads or, or strategically was it creating more of an experience like people were used to getting from America Online so that if, if someone could go to Excite and get their email and their calendar and their horoscopes, it, it sort of becomes the Internet for people if you can brand it that way and, and get that customer loyalty? Well, that was our hope, and I think that um, in looking back at it, we probably, uh, especially the bigger search engines that survived, let's say Yahoo, Excite, and Lycos, to generalize, I think we all fell victim to the idea that we were going to be the mall and the one-stop shop for all of your uh, application needs on the web, and that we would be able to monetize any and all of those through advertising and you know, give away free email. We even had, for example, a, um, uh, a dial-up service uh, that was, I think, either free or very low-priced and bundled with Excite email, and you got an email account and so forth. So there were sort of, there were sort of um, utilities and applications, and then there was content. You know, there was a music channel and a sports channel and a news channel and so forth. Um, and you know, we, and I, I think one of the things that caused all of us to go on such a buying spree between 97 and maybe 2000 or 2001 was one, obviously, Wall Street's excitement, which made capital very inexpensive and available to us. And two was this idea that our traffic was so large and search was such a common starting point for people that we could deliver everything else. And I think um, we were probably naive again here in the sense that each of these areas required a separate expertise. And I suppose, I suppose we thought we could build you know, pretty much all of those expertise through M&A or through hiring people into our own company. And that was just going to be, a, you know, ultimately a very difficult thing to do. But it certainly was the genesis of why, why I think you saw the big search engines get so aggressive in, in M&A and employee growth and product development. And on a personal level, like, like you stated at the beginning, you're, you, you didn't have a business background and, and you had an English degree and all of a sudden, in the period of like ninety eight, ninety nine, now you're leading a company that you know is approaching you know one hundred and fifty million dollars in revenue in ninety eight, and you know thousands of employees at some point, and and now you're a, a blue chip of this new economy that's exploding everywhere. What what was that like for you personally when we get into the craziness of of ninety eight, ninety nine, that time period? So there turned out to be a linkage. Um, between my documentary days and Excite that I didn't know existed um, until I found myself in the trenches. And the nature of how we produced documentaries was you would pitch a buyer who was ultimately a broadcaster in those days, and I would spend generally about 400 grand to produce an hour-long television show. And in those days, you know, you, ha you had seven or eight words you could put into TV Guide to describe the show. And we would go in and make a pitch, and it would be generally first to ABC, but ultimately to other people, um, and and try and summarize what we wanted to do. And I remember people forcing us to refine the pitch, saying, what are the seven words that I'm going to put in TV Guide that's going to cause the show to get a good rating? So you know, we had a lot of training in how to take these uh, vague ideas and reduced them to a small number of words. And, and I'd been trained, of course, as a writer, and, and I liked 
marketing and verbal precision quite a lot. And that turned out to be an interesting training ground for that one piece. The second is once you're given the green light and you have the money, it works just like a startup. So if we did a show, which is a true example of the semi-nomadic habits of um, pygmies in the central Aturi rainforest in the middle of Africa, and it takes you two weeks to even contact the tribe and they speak uh, you know, their own language and then translated through to uh, Bantu at the edge of the forest, translated through to French, which is the language of the Central African Republic, translated through to English, you know, your ability to get people to do things is pretty rudimentary. And then it turns out that you get there and it rains for two weeks solid. And you can't call home and you can't ask the people that funded you, what should you do now? So it turned out to be, and, and, and the clock is ticking. You know, we're burning like sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 a day, camera crews, food, tents, bribes, uh, porters, uh, medical assist on, on things like vaccines and shots. So, you know, it was very startup-like in the sense that you pitch an idea, you be as precise as you can, then you go out into the world to build the idea, and circumstances change, and they're beyond your control, but you have to react, and the clock is ticking, and you're burning money. So I didn't, and by the way, we would take on an average in a documentary probably eight or so people that were primary on the crew, they would travel to a location, and then you would pick up between 30 and 50 porters on location, depending on how far out you were going. Um, they would help actually you know, move equipment and prepare food and these sorts of things. So these weren't small things, but they were sort of essentially enterprises that got created on day one at an airport, and 12 days, 12 days later, you were done, whether you liked it or not. Uh, because you were out of money and out of shooting days and so forth. So um, I learned a lot about how to be nimble and how to juggle uh, circumstances when they aren't what you thought they were going to be. And that ended up being, you know, an actually very valuable training ground. Now, in 98, 99, 2000, the scale of that was enormous. But the principles uh, that translated for me from the documentary stuff to Excite were basically the same. That was one. The only other factor that really mattered was the quality of the people. And people were being thrown at us. They wanted to leave every company to come work at Excite or Yahoo. Um, you could recruit anybody. And we made a lot of mistakes. I did my, plenty of my share of mistakes. And it took me a while to recognize what kind of person could be successful in an environment as unbalanced as Excite. Um, to say any of our companies ran well would be a great exaggeration. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We weren't very good about understanding um, you know, their needs and wants. Uh, attrition was not very high because people liked working there. Everybody got stock. The, the companies were public and always increasing and, and every, they're on everybody's radar. Um, but productivity and really understanding how to onboard people and get them to be productive as quickly as possible and so forth, these were, these were very tough things for us to do, as you said, as you know, a couple thousand people in the company growing as fast as we could. Um, we weren't very good at firing. We weren't very good at uh, weeding out people that weren't performing because we needed people so desperately. Um, and we didn't have really good discipline around that. So I would say for me personally, one was the translation of the documentary experience to the startup experience. And the second was this growing realization that the only way to scale was through higher and higher quality people. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So if, if I have my information correctly, correct, um, in late 98, um, you start the M&A talks that 
eventually lead to the the merger with at home i believe maybe there were there were conversations with uh yahoo and possibly microsoft again why at this point um was excite looking to to partner up with somebody i think we we believed that we were running second to yahoo they were going to be difficult to catch we felt that we had distanced ourselves from Lycos and InfoSeek. I think InfoSeek at that point actually had been sold to Disney and broken up a little bit. Um, lots of other little things had come along, maybe even not so little, but, um, you know, Hotbot, LookSmart, Search.com. Uh, you know, uh, we had bought Webcrawler from AOL, but Webcrawler had been an early search engine. Um, there was uh, Inktomi uh, and so forth. So search continued to be highly competitive, it probably would be fair to say that Excite and Yahoo had broken out pretty clearly, but our conclusion was that we weren't going to be able to catch Yahoo and that we wanted to take a greater risk either in rafting up with someone else to become really a huge sustainable company uh, or take another set of new risks to try a different route to go around Yahoo, if you will. And you're right, actually, at the time, we, we didn't really put a for sale sign up. Um, Deals were very frothy in those days, and combinations were almost occurring daily. But, you know, it was very easy. We spoke to each other all the time. So there's really no for sale sign here. I think, you know, in discussions with both the com- some of the companies I've mentioned and their boards and so forth, we began to look at things. And, yes, Microsoft did return to the table. Um, Steve Ballmer, had, I think, had, had become the CEO or was about to become the CEO, but he basically led uh, the bidding and negotiation for Microsoft um, Tim Kugel, Jerry Yang, and um, uh, Jeff Mallett from uh, Yahoo led their bidding and negotiation with us. And they were basically those companies. And they did represent kind of traditional merger opportunities for us. We thought, okay, this is like the case of exciting Yahoo, one search engine getting together with another. This is sort of like one and two getting together to be really more powerful. So it was probably less exciting to us, and we didn't exactly see exactly what would Excite do that was different from Yahoo? I think both management teams felt we should retain the brands because they had built a lot of value on their own. We weren't exactly clear. Um, we definitely had some ideas, but we weren't exactly clear about what you know Excite would be in an Excite-Yahoo merger. Um, and so that was sort of bumping along. Microsoft was actually kind of in some ways more interesting because they had failed – at various times in search, and they were willing to essentially anoint us as the central hub of search. They weren't going to require us to relocate to Redmond. They were going to leave everything alone. They'd sort of wave the white flag and realize they needed to have a big presence if they wanted to dominate search in Silicon Valley. Um, and then discussions became with, began with at home, and I didn't understand a very central piece, um, which once we, once we got it, made it more interesting, which is that at home, in its agreements with, with its cable companies, which are also its owners, um, was able to monetize and keep 100% of the media that ran through the at-home portal as related to national uh, advertising and national content. And the cable operators were able to keep 100% of the revenue as related to local content and local advertising. And uh, at home had built enough infrastructure at this point where it turned its eyes towards monetizing its media opportunities. And it had done nothing to build out, you know, the national content and national advertising opportunity. And so they they faced a make versus buy decision. And I think they felt it was more expedient to buy. We were literally right across the pond, a little fountain from one another in Redwood City. We were both backed by Kleiner Perkins. We were both public companies. And Tom Jermalak and I, the CEO at, at home, began to have a series of conversations. And I think what got us excited about it was the idea that, Excite and that home together would be a kind of more modern AOL, and there would be you know bypassing the narrow band generation to get to broadband quickly. Right. We should stipulate hire... we should stipulate that at home was one of the the biggest and first companies to to focus on moving towards the broadband era. Right. Yes, and it had developed itself as a, a cooperative in which all of the cable companies signed up to uh, use at home to provide uh, high speed broadband in the home in co-branded partnership with the cable company. So to a consumer, you pay $45 a month to get your first broadband access in your home, and it was essentially a service that was Comcast at home or Cox at home or Cablevision at home. And with it came an at-home email address, at-home billing, 
at-home provisioning and so forth. So um, there's quite a lot of branding that the at-home uh, company controlled within the partnerships with the cable companies, and it went public on the back of being essentially the anointed choice among all of the cable monopolies for the first broadband services in your home. And so uh, we felt that the merger would be a really interesting one, perhaps more interesting than just a simple combination of Excite and Yahoo, because it would allow us to essentially take over the territory we thought was being left vacant by AOL, that is to move into broadband um, and to use a more modern content platform with Excite to start to deliver you know, more video, more interactive content, more interesting forms of advertising over a broadband platform. So ultimately, that was probably the impetus for that merger, um, and I think that was in, occurred in 1999. Right, and, and was one of the larger uh, mergers of its day. Um, you, what position did you take in, in the merged company? Um, initially, I was the president of the merged company, and then in a very short period of time, like three or four months into it, I became the chairman and CEO, and Tom Germalak left. Um, and went off to become a partner or a um, executive in residence at Kleiner Perkins. Right, and so this is 1999. So we're we're definitely right in right in the heat of of uh, the dot com madness era. Um, I have to ask because it's it's in this era um, the opportunity to to purchase Google, um, and I will again stipulate that that Excite was not the only one that turned down the opportunity to buy Google at this period. Alta Vista and Yahoo did also. But do you remember um, when uh, Google comes down the path and, and, and you're taking a look at Google as a, as a possible acquisition? Yes. Um, I'll give you my best recollection of it. This is like a, you know, <laughs> Borgesian short story because I've talked to Joe Krause and Brett Bullington and Graham Spencer about their recollections of it too because it's been written about so much. And all of us have slightly different versions of it, you know. Um, I think partly that's just because it's an old story now, but they actually vary pretty dramatically from, um, I know, for instance, um, the Newsweek journalist Stephen Levy, who wrote a Google book, it varies pretty dramatically from those recollections. So in essence, um, I got a phone call from uh, Vnod Kosla one day at Kleiner saying they had an opportunity to invest in the new search engine. And maybe it's 1998, I, I think it's around that time. And Vinod said that, they would not do it if we objected because, um, you know, they made a lot of money on Excite and they were still on our board and they were big supporters of Excite. And um, I said, well, why don't you make the introduction? I'll talk to the guy and we'll see. And I met a guy named Larry Page who was really representing them at the time. I think there were maybe like three or four employees of Google. They were still operating out of Stanford. They had um, machines and some sort of a beta of the search up running in a lab over there. And, you know, we met Larry several times. He explained what he thought was the difference between the way he approached search and how we did. He was really interested in Excite because he thought of it as a technology company and, and, and not so much in, in Yahoo or others. And he really wanted to build his own company, but he, basically long and short, I said, why don't we run some side-by-side -side tests and see whether your approach to search really does produce differentiated results versus ours. And we probably, over a period of several weeks, developed the capacity to run hundreds of queries of reasonably common searches um, of you know one versus another, Excite versus Google, and we really, frankly, couldn't see much difference. Um, you know, there wasn't a clear delineation. We, I think, I think if you talk to Graham Spencer, he would tell you that they'd done some very clever things in technology. He thought that would allow them to scale with real speed. Um, but that if you looked at results and looked at the way consumers would look at it, um, it really didn't, it really wasn't that differentiated to us. And actually all of us at Excite have a pretty common recollection of that. It's interesting. Stephen Levy has written that we never wanted to um, purchase Google because it was a better search engine and we didn't want the search engine to be too good because we w it would send people off our site to other places. Um, and I, I think that's baloney, I, at least in my own recollection and ultimately of course I did make the decision um, it didn't that's a factor that never occurred to me frankly um, you know we would we would always try and buy or partner with the best product in the best area we could and figure out the business model later um, but in any case um, ultimately Larry said look I like the engineers at Excite I really like the company I get that you don't see a lot of difference 
And I think we struck a price. And I believe that the price was $750,000 in cash and something like 1% of Excite. And the economics of that really were all okay to us. The thing that Larry insisted on that we all do recall is that Larry said, if we come to work for Excite, you need to rip out all the Excite technology and replace it with Google search. And ultimately, that's in my recollection where the deal fell apart because we had hundreds of engineers at that point, And culturally, we really were driven by technology. And I didn't think we could survive or you know, the, the differentiation in the search results were clearly not dramatic enough to justify the cultural risk that Larry would insist on. So ultimately, we passed, and um, the I had ultimate and Vinod Kosla and John Doerr and others stayed close to our conversations, and I gave them the green light to invest in Google as venture capitalists, um, and and ultimately said, look, this is, you know, this is not immediate conflict, and you know, we've looked at the search results very carefully and so forth. So essentially, my recollection is that, you know, for one percent of Excite and seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Uh, but, but a proviso to rip out all of our technology and replace it with Google's, that those terms were what we were down to at the bottom of the negotiation, that ultimately I couldn't stomach the cultural risk that Larry insisted on. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so now we're entering the, the, the era of around 2000, 2001, um, and, and the 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 party's going to be ending soon. Did, from from your point of view at Excite, are you guys able to see uh, things starting to dry up? Um, obviously, you know, companies are starting to go bust and things like that. What was your vantage point or um, for seeing the, the, the dot-com bust coming? Yes. In a simple answer, we did see the beginning of the decline of the big checks. You know, there was a period of time where you, we could go get $20, $30, 40000000 million uh, out of advertisers that wanted to jointly program our channels because the traffic was so large. Um, and then, there were, of course, many customers spending a million dollars or $4 million and so forth, and, and hundreds and hundreds spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, but interestingly, what happened to me personally was after the merger, I wound up spending a lot more time on the at-home side of the business for two reasons. I didn't know it as well, and so I needed to learn it faster. And, and at home, I had a large population of employees, probably 1,500 or so or more of its own. I needed to assess that management team and so forth and figure out integration. But secondarily, I think in the merger, we'd underestimated the complexity of the relationships between at home and its cable partners. So, you know, to make it short, um, their, their largest partners were also their largest shareholders and also their board members. And so um, how you resolved conflicts with cable monopolies um, who you know, both had board votes, uh, preferred board votes, I, I should say, um, and while you were public and also had major business relationships with these guys became a matter of enormous complexity. And um, Wall Street began to worry that each of the cable companies would not necessarily re renew its exclusivity with at home, or at least not under the same terms. And, you know, those uh, lack of exclusive renewals would be devastating to the stock because at, at that point, obviously, other vendors could compete and so forth. Um, but at home enjoyed an enormous monopoly uh, for a while with all the cable companies. So for me personally, I, and, I, and I say this with some sadness because I think my heart and my background around content and advertising and precision of messaging and so forth were really more around the Excite side of the business. But I wound up spending the great majority of my time with the cable companies, um, visiting them, negotiating with them, uh, you know, trying to understand their priorities to either continue to partner with us or take back their services or run them on their own or, you know, where were they going to go in the future? Because, because, the, the, the ability for them to run broadband and integrate it with their cable packages, their video-on-demand packages, and so forth, was becoming increasingly important. And they realized they didn't control their own fate as regards this broadband piece. So, you know, people offering triple plays in those ideas. Uh, you know, they, they had to revenue share with at home. They had to carry the co-branding with at home. You know, they were realize, realizing, I think, that they had signed up to give more uh, of the branding and opportunity in broadband. A way to at home than they had 
expected to. And so I probably spent the last year and a half of my time at the joint company, 90% focused on at-home related issues. And and basically the problem is is that you have no leverage if if one of them says, well, we'll just brand it ourselves and, and make it part of our triple play, you, you really have no way to, to bring them back to the table. Right. And, and we didn't control pricing. So we, we got one-third of the monthly revenue of the broadband subscription. So if it was priced at 45 bucks, we got 15 bucks a month, and the cable companies got 30 bucks a month. But the problem is that if the cable company decided to, for example, for a promotion, give away broadband for free for three months, our share of the revenue for that three months was zero. So we didn't, really, we didn't control pricing. We didn't control promotions. We didn't control how they bundled. But we got our 30% of, you know, once the customer was a paying customer, we got our 30%. But we had a lot of expense to provision the customer, light them up, service the broadband, uh, host call centers, and so forth, right? So there turned out to be a lot of things that were flawed in the structural relationships between the cable companies and at home. Some were good, some were bad, but as the franchise grew and as the cable company's ambition grew to control everything, um, those flaws really became much much negotiated, much discussed, and in in, in a course of high friction. And as far as the, the ultimate fate of Excite, I, I, I acknowledge that this is a highly speculative question, but it occurs to me that even in 2000, 2001, you know, there's only, what, a couple hundred people on the Internet and the web at that point, and now we're, you know, several billion. Do you think that there could have ever been a way for Excite to to continue to exist as a, as a major search play um, had it just been able to, to, to wait it out and, and exist in an era when there's billions of people on the web and the net. And, and so that maybe there could have been a robust number two or even a strong competitor to Google. I do. Um, and perhaps that's wishful thinking because I had a great uh, sentimentality for excite and I still do. Um, I do, but um, I think the genie was out of the bottle. The complexity of these cable relationships, um, I mean, it's not maybe relevant to this story, but for example, you know, cable companies were selling footprint to each other while the at-home Excite franchise was underway. For example, John Malone, who ran TCI, sold TCI to AT&T during the time of our merger, and therefore it made AT&T the predominant shareholder and the largest customer and the biggest board vote around the table for a company called Excite at Home. And AT&T had no interest in Excite and didn't understand content. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things were happening that were really large tectonic shifts around the media and technology landscape at that time. Um, None of them were particularly favorable to us, but we didn't control them. And um, that, you know, ultimately I... Uh, got to the point of personal misery between trying to balance a complex bureaucratic board, which reminded me a lot of my days at Times Mirror. Um, six of our 11 board members were appointed by AT&T, and I had no say over which six they were. And they could outvote us on anything, despite the fact we were a public company. Um, and they also requested that I be in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, frequently um, to talk and negotiate with them and began to start to ask us to be treated like a division of AT&T, uh, conforming things like our salaries and our benefit plans to AT&T. Well, we're a 4,000-person, you know, kind of really new-age Silicon Valley-based company. So we had really deep cultural clashes going on. We had the decline of the advertising piece of the Internet, you know, the first kind of explosion. We had the complexity of these cable relationships being played out in public. Um, and I basically waved my hand probably in 2000 saying enough is enough and I would, I'd like to resign and we can conduct, conduct a search for somebody to replace me. Um, and that's what we did. And that search ended up taking quite a lot longer than the board thought. And I asked obviously the board to conduct that search without me, if you will, because it was someone that was going to replace me. And, um, they, they ultimately chose a woman named Patty Hart, um, and I never really knew Patty. I maybe spent an hour with her, but she was um, a telecom person. I believe she'd come from Sprint or something. But she was an AT&T choice, and you know, and and had 
if you will, telephone DNA and came into this job uh, from that perspective, you know, and they were always going to kind of come in from the, from the carrier broadband side of the equation, not from the Excite side. Um, and I vacated the company when Patty finally got started. And in fact, it took so long that I'd already moved my family back to the East Coast uh, more than a year before I was replaced and spent the last 16 months of my time uh, at Excite at Home on a weekly commute back and forth between San Francisco and Boston, where I now live. And that doesn't include my business travel uh, when I would go you know, to other parts of the world or other parts of the country for partner meetings or whatever, more mm-hmm. Wall Street or wherever it might be. So for me personally, it was exhausting. It was depressing um, because of the complexity of ownership and this bureaucracy around um, large companies like AT&T. Um, and we also had external factors both the decline of the internet and the movement of the cable companies that were, you know, wins against us that were really, that really felt beyond control. So it was, it was exhausting. It was sort of depressing in that way. And it was, you know, there was a sense of ultimately futility. I think if someone had wanted to come in and sort of take Excite private and, and, you know, the private equity firm had put together a deal to do so, people would have listened, but the whole thing was almost too large and too caught up in the larger themes of the day to avoid you know this this larger fate of ultimately being broken up. If I could trouble you for one more question, um, since we've ended up talking so much about about cable companies and and the uh, the broadband era and things like that, um, do you have any thoughts on the the big news today about the president supporting um, regulating uh, broadband and internet access as as a utility, um, either that or even just the state of of competition in the broadband market today? I think there should be a wholesale market for broadband as a regulated utility. Um, I don't know why in the end of the day it's any different than electricity or water. Um, and if third parties want to kind of come in and build applications or services on top of that wholesale price, that probably ought to be good for innovation. Um, and I've always felt that way. And there was a, you may remember there was a movement um, in 2000, 2001 we haven't talked about the regulatory environment, but there's something called net neutrality um, that was starting up at the time that would have caused the cable companies or forced them, you know, 12, 13 years ago to engage in wholesale pricing. And they fought it off and were able to stave it off and told the government it would be disastrous for their profitability and it would, you know, they wouldn't want to invest anymore in building out um, T1 and other high-speed lines. And, of course, that has largely turned out not to be true. You know, the, the incentive for their investment continues to be there. So... I believe, actually, the utility approach at some basic level will probably foster innovation at a greater level than, um, than, than keeping, the, keeping the cable companies away from having to offer a wholesale price. All right, and absolutely last question. Um, it's, it's almost 20 years ago that, that you made that leap out, out west and, and to, to join a, a tech company. Um, when you look at the state of, of the Internet and technology in general today, um, is it is it what you is it what you imagined it would be twenty years on, or is it beyond what you could have imagined, or is it not quite where you hoped it would be? It's beyond what I imagined in the sense that the technology more broadly, um, obviously, you know, now led by mobile, but technology has permeated uh, aspects of our life I never would have thought that it would. Uh, we really, we really didn't have a way to understand the way in which social would become pervasive. Uh, we had chat rooms that we launched, and but we really didn't connect the idea of chat to, uh, you know, issues, issues influence, politics, commerce, um, you know, the, 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 the rise of the intersection of community, product, sharing. Um, so I would say that the technology has... Um, has sort of um, made its way into every little crevice of life um, in a way that I didn't see at the time or at least had a hard time imagining would happen. I think that's generally been good. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not pejorative about that, but um, it certainly has gone much, much further than I think I imagined at the time. Well, George Bell, thank you so much for taking the time to remember all that for us. Thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. 
If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.